Welcome to the Sound Lens Podcast. I'm Jillian Wise. And I'm Louise Fagan. And we're here today with part two of our conversation with Susan Keogh. English-born and Irish-educated, Susan was a U.S. diplomat for 32 years. Her assignments at the State Department included Deputy Chief of Mission in Eritrea, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Human Rights, Democracy, and Labor, and Officer in Charge of South Africa over the period of the democratic transition. Her other assignments were as Deputy Spokesperson for the Middle East over the Gulf War and Director of Law Enforcement and Anti-Narcotics Programs in Peru and Bolivia. Before becoming a Foreign Service Officer, Susan taught at the Universities of Cape Town, South Africa, in Niamey, Niger, and at secondary schools in Swaziland and the Central African Republic. Susan also spent two years teaching in a school for the blind in Colombia. Susan, can you describe to us what a career in the Foreign Service looks like? Just for, I mean, or maybe your experience, because I can't even imagine what your day-to-day would be or week-to-week. So first of all, you have to do an exam and then an assessment exam after if you pass that, where you write lots of essays, and then you have your personal in-person interview. And I'm not sure what number of people take the exam anymore, but it used to be like about 18,000 people took the exam every year, about 3,000 people passed, and about 300 people actually got in. So mm-hmm. you feel when you get in that you've kind of won the lottery. It's an amazing feeling when you actually are there. And I say, it feels like you're joining the mothership because everybody, you have a diplomatic passport, you know you have a life career, basically, if you want it. And it won't be boring because you're going to be moving all done. You have to be worldwide available. Unlike the Canadian Foreign Service that only has, you know, regional hub posts, we have 300 plus embassies and consulates around the world. A lot of them are hardship posts. Quite a few of them are unaccompanied. Mm. You really have to do a lot of juggling if you want children and trying to sort of manage family life, especially for a woman. Mm -hmm. Then all go and marry some beautiful young person working in the consular section (laughs) in Mexico City at their first post, you know. But for women, you're a diplomat and it's it's harder for you to go out into the local. And it's harder for men to travel around with female spouses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's an incredible career. You, you get loads of teaching, loads of training. You know, I got to go for a year as the Dean Rusk Fellow at Georgetown University, which was an amazing experience. You, you get to meet all kinds of fantastic people from, from you know, the president, prime minister, right down to the gardener and the human rights victim. I was the human rights officer in India. I just met so many incredible, brave lawyers and women running groups for burn victims. And, you know, I was just, you had this extraordinary exposure in the society. And it, it is tough on kids because they have to change schools, etc. But I think once you become sort of a global nomad, it becomes a a marvelous thing for them as well. They become richer and deeper people. Mm -hmm. Their exposure to poverty and understanding about respect for people in all walks of life. And they learn to be very culturally sensitive and attuned. It's It's a brilliant, brilliant way of life. I definitely encourage you to try it, Gillian. But you have to have a spouse who will travel with you. (laughs) I'll talk to him and see if he's open. (laughs) 
What did your parents think, you know, they had this hope for you that you were going to stay close to home, maybe be a teacher, more one of, one of those more traditional yeah. professions for women. And so you totally obviously didn't do any of that. At this point, what were they What were they thinking of, of what you were accomplishing? Well, you know, it's interesting. My mom, of course, I won't say she lived through me, but because she grew up in Malaysia and had this very interesting background herself and had never been allowed to work. My father absolutely wouldn't let her work. He was very mm-hmm. traditional. And my father was rather disapproving of me. I remember at one point when I was a kid, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, maybe I could work in the bank. And he said, you'd be hopeless. We'd never hire you. Oh. <laughs> so <laughs> dad was not very encouraging. No. <laughs> Mum was super encouraging. So I think it was my life's work to impress my father that I wasn't this hopeless person. And he was a marvellous source of motivation to me. I absolutely loved him. He was a great person, really, a very conservative, but very great person. I loved both my parents deeply, and I had a very good family, and I love going back and staying with them and seeing them. My parents have been dead for a long time now. They both died when I was in my 40s, but I absolutely love going and being with my family. They're all rural country sort of people and it grounds me and I think it's actually something that gave me a very good sense in Africa because I came from a rural background and lived in the country growing up and my family were long history on my father's side as farmers. I found I I had a lot in common with rural and agricultural people in in Africa and, and in other places in Latin America and India too. You said earlier that you had a non-traditional path to the Foreign Service. But I can see that that actually being such a huge benefit. And you, as you just described, even with your upbringing, uh, how you can relate, but, but what you could bring to the roles. Well, I don't know. I mean, I say I always felt like I think I sort of felt for quite a while, I got away with things in the Foreign Service, because I was older when I joined, because I obviously had a British accent. And I think people say, well, she doesn't know she's English. Kind of <laughs> Did she have a security clearance? I heard somebody say that. <laughs> I mean, an American for most of my adult life. But I also, I found that when I first started, I tend to wear flowery dresses and things and everyone else is wearing suits. And I, mm. I always felt like a kind of a misfit in mm. the foreign service to some extent. But it gave me a kind of, I won't say boldness because that sounds, that's wrong, but I did argue policy issues I did stick up for things I believed in. If I didn't agree with the policy, I never said so publicly, of course, because who cares what I think, but Mm. I would argue policy issues quite hard behind the scenes. And of course, people knew I was a widow and my husband had been killed in a terrorist attack. So I think I sort of felt like I had a bit of of leg room that maybe other people didn't have. So I, I just felt very lucky that I was able to be myself in a way and not just become a pointy-headed bureaucrat, you know. So now we're into the 1990s, aren't we, when we're talking about your work, and you were in the Middle East and Africa, and you did just touch on a little bit about the plight of women and children in the areas of conflict, and I don't know how much of a focus your work was on that, or if that just naturally, because those were the issues that were in those countries, but... What did this work mean to you? Well, coming from the time as a child and being exposed to my grandfather's experiences, I was always very preoccupied with man's inhumanity to man. I was 
always preoccupied with what it would be like to be in a situation where you didn't have food, where people were being cruel to you, where you were trying to survive kind of thing. And so it was natural in my work that used to come out quite often. And so as I was the human rights officer in India, which meant I had to go and investigate communal massacres and I had to report on, you know, bride burnings. And I actually saw really the underbelly of India from that point of view. But then I also saw loads of marvellous, brave people who were in organisations combating that. You know, I had a lot of admiration for them. But then I went on and became the Director for Bilateral Affairs and then the Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Human Rights Bureau. And I became very aware of the situation in the East, in Congo and in Rwanda, of course. And I did a couple of missions out to Rwanda. And then I went into the Eastern Congo and I did a sort of survey of what was happening to women and children in conflict in the Eastern Congo. And that was in 2000. Thousand, I think. And uh, it was really, again, another of these transformational experiences. I was mostly with the International Rescue Committee people who were in there and say so the children people. They're incredibly brave folks that live. I mean, I was just visiting. They lived there. Mm. And they were always using microphones to tell each other walkie-talkies whether you could go on this road or not on that road. It was super dangerous. And uh, we, we took quite a long trip into the canopy, the undergrowth, into the forest where people were hiding. And when we got there, the people said straight away, do you have brought any food with you? And we hadn't. And I was kind of like, I'm here to find out how many people in your family have died, you know, what's in your household, what your situation is and everything. And they're like, you didn't bring any food? <laughs> and we were like, oh my God, this is dangerous. You know, we're mm. not in a good place here. But anyway, I also visited a lot of clinics, talked to people. I remember talking to a boy outside a clinic and I said to him, you know, did you eat today? And he said, oh, no, I ate yesterday. My turn's to eat tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, it was like, mm. oh my God. Anyway, the, the food scarcity there was absolutely horrendous. And then, of course, everybody was in danger and just everyone was being attacked. By, oh, just really a very alarming thing. Here that these brave women's groups getting together and I said to this one women's group what do you do when somebody is killed in your family or anything and they say oh well we just get our pots and pans and we go down to the militias or everything we bang our pots and pans and we say hey you did this you know and mm, I mean it was wow. just like you're just so humbled mm. you're just utterly humbled by people's ability to fight back all the teachers in this area were still going to school and they haven't been paid in who knows how long but they just said that's what our job is, so we're just going to keep teaching. Anyway, it was a very, very powerful experience. I, and I wrote a big report to the UN, which at that time was not really in that area. And then the UN finally did come in and there was a lot more focus on the food situation. But I mean, I think something like two million people had died in that area when I went in. So anyway, that, that kind of stuff, I like child soldiers, for example, I went into a few child soldiers camps at that time oh. we were trying to support some training programs to train kids who'd been recruited as child soldiers and you know it's tragic stuff tragic stuff they're little kids and they've done terrible things and their villages don't want them back and that's a rather long-winded way of saying i've always been sort of deeply involved with children in particular and the elderly the most mm -hmm. vulnerable ends of the spectrum and basically just not sort of breast beating over it, know how sad and how terrible, but very practically trying to think of things to do, very concrete steps to actually make a difference, figure out what works, what the unintended consequences are of our trying to help, which sometimes is 
you know, worse than doing nothing. And I'm still, even at my age and stage of life, very preoccupied and concerned with those things and try and do practical things to, in a very small way at this point, because I don't have a bully pulpit of a job where I can do it through mm-hmm. now. So. so was your responsibility then in your role to go to these places, observe what was happening and then make recommendations as to... In some cases, yes. To how the situations could be improved or... Like what, what was your mandate? Well, when I was physically living in India, that was my mandate. I wrote a human rights report, congressional mandate every year. I did have some program funding. By the time I got to the Washington side of the policymaking, I did have funding then because it's grown considerably since I was in the Bureau. But when I was there, I was able to fund a project of building a village in Rwanda for women survivors who had many orphan children with them. Mm. We were able to do that. And I went out and watch them building that village. And we did programs in Cambodia for women and who had gone through the autogenocide and very slow to do anything to bring these women together in groups where they trained them in actual jobs, job skills. But at the same time, they'd all been through the same experiences and they were able to finally open up and talk to each other. And the same thing in Bosnia. We did a a biggish program in Bosnia. I never went out to see the Cambodia program or the Bosnia program, but it was with the same thing in mind. Women survivors trying to kind of bury all the terrible things that had happened to them and we got them together in groups where they could learn how to do leather work or machine things or locksmithing or whatever. But a lot of it was therapeutic so that Mm -hmm. they could be with each other and talk. Was this, did you find it was healing for you too, given what you'd gone through? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, whenever I talk to people who've gone through a terrible loss, you can't be too prescriptive because everyone is so different. But, you know, through pain, if you can find purpose, your life is transformed. Wow, that's beautiful. That's the truth. There is, I guess, a shared understanding between people who've had extraordinary loss. But you have to be purposeful. You have to fill your life with purpose. At one point, one of my sons was grumbling to me and saying, oh, well, mom, you always made us feel like we had to do public service. Like it was like, it's like really bad. You know? <laughs> I was like, no, no, no. I feel like your life has a point. You've got to be giving of yourself and learning and growing and making a difference somewhere. That's why you're still around. You know? Because you started a grief group. Is that Am I right about that or? No, I I didn't start a grief group, but I was, the State Department sometimes would send me when somebody had been killed in plane crash, terrorist bomb, car disaster, I sometimes would go and talk to people and, and it was helpful for me and it was helpful for them because how am I going to get through this kind of thing? And you could say, well, you won't be able to write a check or figure things out for months, but about a year from now, you'll be, you'll be functioning again you know and you can't believe it now but you will that kind of stuff I mean not really profound you know five stages of grief or anything but just more practical encouragement and help on practical things like paperwork and stuff I end up being drawn to people who have had serious loss because I sort of feel like that's something I can do I can help like that so how did you end up in Quebec (laughs) I had custody issues with my son, Luke, my last, the surprise. And I was trying to figure out how I had to go overseas 
to stay in the Foreign Service. I couldn't take Luke with me. People who have custody issues, it's their lives become very constrained. And my lovely boss in the Human Rights Bureau went to bat for me. And I was suddenly offered, out of the blue, the job as Consul General in Quebec, which I was able to then do custody issue, the custody back and forth. Mm-hmm. My son was able to fly back and forth between Montreal and, and Washington very easily. And so I was very glad, very, very glad I didn't have to leave the Foreign Service, which is what I thought I'd have to do. I did have a chance to keep going. Mm-hmm. And when I got to Quebec, it was 10 days before 9-11. So I was there at a very tumultuous time. And I was given guards by the Canadian government, which I didn't think I need the RCMP, but I had RCMP guards for 18 months. So everywhere I went, I had two stalwart RCMP guys with me. I did go to, I went to St. Patrick's Church there with my guards. And I bumped into and got to know Bob Delaney there, but he was the head of the parish council and other things. And he did the St. Patrick's Day thing, was the, you know, maitre d' kind of (laughs) animator guy. I remember always thinking what a character he was and what a terrific guy he was. And then his wife died and I went to the funeral. And at the funeral, I saw this sort of row of bowed heads on the front row which were his four children and I just remember this surge of thinking oh the poor kids you know this stuff they're going through their mum was quite young and what a terrible thing for them and so I I thought at some point I'm going to say to Bob the blue angels are coming are doing it and we're organizing a big event and do the kids want to come and meet the blue angel the pilots you know they're flying or there's a, a, a baseball thing. I was thinking there must be something I could do for those those kids. So at some point, a few months later, when I saw Bob, and he was looking rather serious and sort of got a serious face when he's not smiling. And I said, how are, how are things going for you? And how are your kids doing and everything? And I said, I don't think you know this, but I actually was widowed 20 years ago. And I've been through this, so I kind of know what you're going through. And I said, if you ever want to talk about anything, give me a call. And he said, that's very kind of you. No, thanks. shut down and then about three weeks later i get a note from him that he's passed to one of my guards (laughs) i was gonna say how did you manage through and like get to you and (laughs) no wonder he said no thank you (laughs) so the guards passed me the note and i he said yeah i actually i'd be happy to come and meet you at the consulate so he came and had lunch at the consulate we had this sort of extraordinary lunch where it was like you know when we talked to each other you know we quickly dropped all the usual stuff we got right down into what happens to people when they die do you still feel that person's presence with you and how do you cope with all this sense of i'm going to be alone for the rest of my days and how am i going to live and how am i going to manage my poor children they're going to be damaged and miserable and all of those things, we got right into the heart of things immediately. And when he left, I realized we kind of moved into a very intimate space very quickly. And so I quickly stuck my hand out to say goodbye to him because, of course, in Quebec, everyone goes kiss, kiss. And I was like, oh, gosh, no, I'm not going there. So he apparently laughed all the way back to the car, I think, with me with my hand stuck out. And then we 
he asked me again a couple of weeks went by and he asked me if I'd like to go and play games over at his family's house and so bring you bring Luke and we did and Scott Bob's youngest son and Luke went and played Pokemon and, and I had an amazing conversation with Alice and Bob's eldest daughter I stayed for about five hours it was crazy my poor gods were sitting in a snowy car <laughs> <laughs> Where is she? What's going on? Anyway, things moved on. And it was a really a very powerful and amazing emotional experience. And I felt terrible about it because I thought, it's way too soon. This man doesn't know what he's doing. My kids all thought the same thing. Oh, my God, Mum, the poor guy doesn't know what he's doing. And I thought, I have to stay far away from this. I can't, I can't go this route. But then I was going to be posted overseas and we were standing on the boardwalk and I said to Bob, I'm going to be posted overseas. And he looked at me and he said, I'm going to come with you. And I said, you can't. You can't just come with me. It doesn't work that way. You know, you need to fill all the paperwork out. <laughs> <laughs> he hadn't gotten the the application forms yet. This isn't just a simple thing, you know, you have to, there's a lot of paperwork involved. So we both kind of went away and we've sort of shattered a little bit thinking about this possibility. And I said, you know, Bob, your family is going to hate me. I can't do this to your family. Your kids need you here. And he said, well, Alison's already going places and she's sort of leaving the house and Bryce is in college and Scott could come with us. And so we started to sort of think about how we could do it. And then he sort of said, well, where would we go? And then he said, I'd like to be able to have Scott speak Spanish. I'd like to become trilingual. So I tried to find Latin American jobs. And the only job I could find in Latin America was a terribly difficult job being the head of the anti-narcotics programs. Oh my gosh. (laughs) in Peru. And I'm like, oh my God, I know nothing about the police except bad things about the police. (laughs) And I know nothing about drugs. And I thought, well, they'll never take me for this. So anyway, I applied and I got it. So I said to Bob, do you want to go to Peru? And he's like, sounds good. Great high school. Sounds wonderful. Scott was like less keen on the whole thing. (laughs) Luke was not too keen either. And anyway, we all the four of us went to Peru. Bryce came down for a while. Shane came down for a while. Allison came down. We had incredible times together in Peru. Bryce ended up marrying a Peruvian. He got a job in the embassy and married a Peruvian. They were all deeply affected. And then the rest is history. It worked. We've been married now for nearly 20 years. It's brilliant. It's the most beautiful, happy, harmonious fun. We have eight children between us. We have 14 grandchildren. And we just pinch ourselves every day. It's like I talk about getting the foreign service as a one in a million thing, but this is just so utterly unexpected. And serendipity is all I can say. curious about the timeline of when Bob's first wife passed away, then you started spending time together. And then that conversation at the dock, how, how long after the dock conversation? Well, it was March, April that we had a couple of those couple of meetings. And then in June, Bob basically said to his kids, what would you think if I asked Susan out on a date? And I think Alison and Shane was far away, but I think Alison and and Bryce were both, bit soon, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And Scott was like, I knew it. I knew it. (laughs) 
so yeah, I mean, it was it was tough for both of us. We would go to church and we would sit sort of at opposite ends of the pew because you know we felt like this was inappropriate and too soon no question but then we got married the next summer and in 2004 and then we went we went off to to peru in in august we got married in june but anyway that that is a a tricky thing because i'd been a widow you know a long time but i had done a sudden remarriage which was an absolute just not a disaster i mean Luke is the best thing that ever happened from the healing point of view. He's the most mm-hmm. marvelous kid who, by the way, is also in the Foreign Service now, <laughs> having gone through school in Quebec and everything. He's now in the Foreign Service. 19 years married, but a relationship for a little bit longer. So are you, where are you situated now? Where, where do you and Bob call home? <laughs> well, that's good. Bob is a Quebecer and he loves living in French. He was city council person. He was a teacher's union. Uh, he deeply, deeply engaged with Quebec. And I have my kids and my family here and a lot of things that I do here too. So we, of course, divided our lives and we do six months in Quebec and six months here. I'm a Canadian resident and we have a house in the marvelous old quarter of Saint-Jean-Baptiste in Quebec. Oh, which we absolutely love. It's real city living, you know, graffiti and crazy, interesting people all around us. And then we live six months of the year in Washington, just outside of Washington, in a marvelous tree-filled lot. We feel like we're, it's called an urban forest where we live. So we have, we don't just do the winters in Washington and the summers in Quebec. We we spend part of the winter in Quebec and we move back and forth. And then occasionally we do six months in England, which we're about mm-hmm. to do next year where we live on a farm for six months. It's amazing, really, that we're able to. And I did a glide path after I retired from the Foreign Service, so I did missions for several years. I went to Indonesia and several times, and I did Belize and Costa Rica and Colombia. And Anyway, there, there were some really fun times where we went together and did these longish periods overseas, but then we'd come back again. But now we're pretty much into the six-month, six-month routine. Bob is on a lot of boards and things in Quebec, and so he's always doing zoom meetings and i have a lot of things i do i'm learning algebra from my granddaughter right now wow that's amazing (laughs) and i was just going to ask so you said you're learning algebra what else how else do you keep yourself stimulated (laughs) i guess after um you know being so on all the time for your whole life bob still says our motto is compromise and do everything i mean every day we've got all kinds of crazy fun stuff we're doing and some of it is still a bit of public service some of it is doing st- going to see kids performing in plays and things like that i occasionally babysit neighbor kids i go swimming every day i have bad arthritis so i go swimming all the time bob plays tennis all the time and um, we take our grandchildren on, on a 10 trip when they turn 10 so we've done about six so far we've got three more coming up this year where we take them somewhere we don't do disney world we do camping in the everglades or we're going to stay with two of the grandchildren from vancouver on vashon island in uh, puget sound in a little place called the enchanted cottage (laughs) anyway we've always got some plan up our sleeves Mm -hmm. and he reads aloud to me we've read over 80 books i keep a list of the books we've read together and you know argue about politics and (laughs) you know it's a pretty amazing life we both just bathe in gratitude which is like Mm -hmm. we're constantly telling 
each other how incredibly fortunate we are. So, and we could be sad people, huh? Yes, mm-hmm. but we're not. <laughs> it's, it's a really motivating and deeply inspiring story, Susan. I'm just curious, just to just to make sure we get we do proper kudos for your career. So, wh- when did you officially end your work with the Foreign Service, or have you? <laughs> Well, funnily enough, I I officially retired in uh, 2008, but I went on doing these missions overseas. They sort of rehired me to do missions all over the place until 2016, when I went in at the end of January and handed in my retirement because, resignation rather, because I couldn't conceive of working for President Trump. That was a bridge too far. (laughs) So anyway, so basically 2000, I I think I officially got struck off the the list in 2017. But my son, Luke, is such fun that he is now, he's getting his first posting and it's in Kampala in Uganda. So I imagine we'll give him some time to settle in. But That's such a cool thing that you can share together. It's amazing. It is. I recently was in Ireland and I went to visit an old friend's aunt who was 99. And this old woman was really a piece of work and just full of piss and vinegar. And I said to her, what were the changes in your lifetime that had really been beneficial for women, do you think? And she looked at me and she stuck her face into mine. She said, are you one of those women's libbers? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I thought, so I said quickly, um, 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 m- m- yes, maybe. <laughs> anyway, I made, it made me think about that question myself. And I th- was thinking, what are really the most important things that I can think of? Because I'm getting older too. And I, you know, it's of course, there's been a social revolution for women in our lifetimes. And there's been a health revolution too. Women's and children's health is just incredible incredibly changed in my lifetime. But I think the thing that jumps to mind for me that was the best change that happened in my lifetime was divorce. Because if, I mean, this whole idea that my parents who really weren't very happily married, there was never a question they would get divorced. You just had soldiered on with whoever it was you came in with, even if you were quite unhappy. And when I see how joyous my life is, and how happy mm-hmm. I am with Bob Delaney. <laughs> and if I had had to continue on in the previous situation I was in, I mean, my life would have been really miserable. So there you go. I think divorce is the absolutely best thing that's ever happened. Mm-hmm. But it's incredible to have just how that's an option for women now, especially because we are independent financially and have education, access to education and stuff that it's, you know, it's great that women feel, I guess, independent enough to be able to do that. It's socially much more acceptable. And of course, Quebec, God bless them in Quebec, most people don't get married. And I love it because, you know, you're making a commitment, but you're not, you're not sort of strapped down in quite the same way that people used to be. I'm a deep believer in solid families and promises kept and all Mm -hmm. of those things. But I just think it can be a life sentence to have to spend it with someone who isn't the right person for you.
Good morning. How are you today? My morning has been really good. You know, I've been getting up early mm -hmm. and I did another yoga morning, just like a 15 minute good morning to the world yoga stretch. And it just, mm. it, it just feels really good. Mm -hmm. As I get off, like I get off of habits or practices because I'm fickle and I, I get bored easily. So after like two or three months of doing something, so it's been a lot of walking over the winter, which has been really, really nice. Mm -hmm. And then I was really feeling it over the weekend and um, started to up my yoga practice again. And even if I only do 15 or 20 minutes in the morning, it just... It just reframes mm -hmm. my whole, you know, mm -hmm. it just does. So, yeah. and I, I always have oatmeal in the morning. And as Michael says, hmm, you going to heat that to make it taste better? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I like oatmeal too. I do too. I put my blueberries with it and I'm like really super happy. And I just feel that with some kind of practice mm -hmm. in the morning, my coffees, reading the papers. That's so nice. Yeah. It's a beautiful start to the day for me. Mm -hmm. When it gets a little bit nicer, then I'll do my coffee walk in the garden, which I'm excited. Can't wait to be able to do that. So Yeah, that'll be nice. I kind of had a bad sleep last night because my back was sore. I like did a bit more of an intense workout on the weekend. Not not actually that intense, but just more than what I've been doing. And so my body's kind of like tight after it. And I should have stretched yesterday and I didn't. And mm. then last night I just my I could feel, like I just kept tossing and turning and like my back is sore and my neck is kind of oh. sore and so I am I'm gonna do some yoga today probably at lunchtime oh good good yeah does yoga tend to mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. I just do like a short kind of like what you're saying 20 minutes like I follow a YouTube video and uh, mm -hmm. that helps that's why I always follow the YouTube videos too <laughs> I'm gonna tell you you know what I'm like though like second day in the morning we're doing I'm like I really do want to get my yoga teaching certificate my 200 hours becomes your whole personality like I just <laughs> I don't even know so much of that but I just love you know I love the idea of school in general mm. I know that's kind of very but I I just love the digging into the learning of it and then mm. if I'm going to go to all that trouble of learning why don't I actually get a certification right yeah so <laughs> We'll see. You know, I've mentioned this before. Yeah. <laughs> so besides your back, how did you take, is it Twyla for a walk in the mornings? Do you still do that? Yeah, yeah. So I took her for a walk, a short one, came back, made some tea and a smoothie, and then just sat on my phone for a little bit. I finished him a book mm -hmm. last week, and I had been kind of reading that in all of my little spare time moments between things, and now I don't have that. So and then I ended up just kind of going on my phone for a little bit, which I don't really like. It just, just doesn't really feel very good. So I need to start hmm. the next book that I have and get into it hmm. so that I feel a bit more replenished between things. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. Uh, I, I wanted to hear about your book, but I do want to say something about that. You know, sometimes in the middle of the day, a half hour of TV or mindless scrolling on YouTube can actually be really rejuvenating. And I think... Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes we feel that doing something that isn't productive or industrious or has mm -hmm. some kind of outcome is like wrong, yeah. actually just wrong. Yeah. But you're right, though, to think about how you feel. Like you said, you were feeling, you weren't feeling great. Yeah. Like I do, I, f I agree with that too, what you just said. And I find like, I'll do a bunch of things, like let's say productive things or cleaning or reading or whatever. And then I'm like, oh, I, I actually would just like 30 minutes on my phone, like horizontal mm -hmm. on the couch you know, yeah. not doing anything else. And I do feel good after that. I just, mm. last night I was on my phone a bit and then mm. like earlier in the day and then this morning already that it's like, 
I'm not having fun catching up on things on my phone. It's just like, oh, I've got 30 minutes before I'm meeting with mom. I'm going to go on my phone because I don't really know what else to do at that time. And I don't want to have to, I don't want to do something productive, Mm -hmm. but my phone doesn't, isn't really making me feel good either. Anyway, yesterday though, after our conversation with Susan, I felt so inspired. I just felt like my imagination expanded for what my life could be. And not that it was closed off before, but it's just amazing to see someone, you know, like later in life who's lived this and actually hear a decent amount of their story. Like just that she has a positive outlook on it. Do you know what I mean? I do. And I, it's like, it's incredible to hear you say all of that too. She, like, she just kind of glossed over, oh, then I was in Ireland for school. And then I was in, you know, Africa. And then I was in mm-hmm. the, or Europe. And then I was in the United States. And then I was, and it's like, can you, like, you know, that leaping, that, you know, the leap of faith that she took, mm-hmm. but just the faith really that she, she could land and handle herself. She could handle herself in any, any situation. Mm-hmm. And I feel that about you. Like, I feel you are a person who, who would land and be able to handle like that, those unknowns as they come up. Mm-hmm. Do you, what, what do you think about that? I mean, I, I definitely believe in my ability to adapt and, you know, deal with challenges as they come up. But I was, I guess I'm more curious to hear from you how you thought about it towards yourself. Well, initially I was like, am I too old to join the foreign service? (laughs) Not that I want to handle any like conflict areas. And when she said, you know, most of the areas are conflict, I was like, okay, well then forget it. But you know, the whole idea, honestly, I love the idea of like being a diplomat, you know, Mm -hmm. like going and doing the hospitality. And I love the whole pomp and circumstance around these things. Like whenever we watching something of that has some kind of majesty or decorum or you know I, I'm not even sure what what the right words are but mm-hmm. I I get into all of those details like looking behind the scenes I love all of that so that part of me was like gosh am I too old but that being said I don't know how she handled I mean she described how she did but I'm just meaning in her heart when her first husband died and then with the children and moving and mm-hmm. the public all of that I was just that is like a huge strength. She's a very, very emotionally strong woman, yet also vulnerable. Like she was Mm -hmm. shared those vulnerabilities Mm -hmm. and incredibly self-aware. And so when we get to this, where she is in her story now with her husband, Bob, and they've been married coming up, well, 19 years, she said, coming up to 20 Mm -hmm. and the blended family and all the grandchildren and their travel, it just feels like the happy ending that they both deserve. I mean, we only heard a little bit of Bob's Mm -hmm. story, but that whole family deserved a happy ending. It makes me teary to think about it, the romantic in me, but also just because family is so important to me and it was at her core as well. And yet she still did all these things outside of you know, a traditional family life structure. Yeah. And just like there were so many chapters of her life and a few really devastating ones, but also so many great things that came after that. Like the fact that she, her joining the foreign services, which is a huge part of her story, happened after she lost her first husband and during a tumultuous relationship, it sounds like, and having a newborn, it's like that's, or maybe not a newborn, but having a baby, that's, it's incredible. And it's just really cool to see that 
how people navigate their lives at different stages and what the possibilities are. And I want to say too, Jillian, that I feel like there's, you know, obviously there, she has hundreds of stories, but but like, what was it like to be in the room in those conversations for her career in in those offices? Like, but to hear from somebody and and I think her perspective as a woman, which she brought up numerous times, it would be fascinating to hear more about those stories. I, that's something that maybe we could have her back. I don't know if she could talk mm-hmm. or if she could share any of that. Mm-hmm. But those are like, wow, there's a there's a lot there. Yeah, and I just love too. At the end, she was just highlighting gratitude and how that her and Bob just kind of live with gratitude every day. And I mean, it's not the first time we've spoken about that on the podcast. And it's just a great reminder. Thank you for saying I think you're right. And really, even when she again, talking about her story, she was with gratitude for having the job, gratitude Mm -hmm. for the opportunity. It's yeah, gratitude informed a lot of her, her life choices, I think the way she described it. Wow. Go Susan. We'd like to thank Susan Keogh for being a guest on the Soundlands podcast. And I'm going to list off just a couple of her incredible Mm -hmm. awards that she won. So she was the recipient of U.S. State Department Superior Honor Awards and Meritorious Honor Awards. She was the recipient of the Peruvian Air Force Grand Cross Decoration and recipient of the Bolivian Police School Emblem Decoration. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, download the episode, like, and review the Soundlens podcast, and share it with someone you think would enjoy it. You can also follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Soundlens Podcast. And for more episodes, visit soundlenspodcast.com. Love you. Love you too. Bye, dear. Bye.